what we are obligated to do now morally right. the, the we have like the absolute honor of carrying on um because things have in a way never been so possible um right. as gloomy as they seem it's really because the seams are coming off yeah welcome See. to the long march people So it's the premiere of uh, re-premiere of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, and <laughs> <laughs> that's the big news today. Yeah, nothing else happened. Everything is fine. Um, well, welcome to the death panel. We might as well just jump right in. I don't have a joke today because yeah. we're recording a little earlier than we normally would. Also, nothing's we... funny. So there we are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Exactly. I mean, I could have, I could have done something about maybe Santa Fe, but it just doesn't feel appropriate because, folks. <laughs> There's always Bernie a Santa Fe joke is... hiding up your sleeve. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm I'm consistent. What can I say? But you know, um, Bernie Sanders is just well. He's announced that he's like not continuing to campaign for president. Yeah, he hasn't dropped out. He he's will be on the, the ballot. Campaign. Yeah, yeah. But he is not going to be actively running for president. He's uh, going to be focused on covid work of course already there have been takes that he was not praising biden enough in his uh, public address to his supporters and that he did not do enough to convince them to vote for biden oh dear leader which is (laughs) true because he said i'm going to stay on the ballot and you should still vote for me by mail in the primary so that we have as much power as possible during the convention. So <laughs> yes, geez, I'm sorry. I, guess... I didn't endorse a blithering idiot. Enough. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, I think that, uh, Bernie said about as much as there is to say in support of Joe Biden <laughs> without, so. you know, violating well, your ba- basic moral principles. Right. I think pretty much throughout this entire campaign, like Bernie Sanders, when everybody's like, did he say that? His response pretty much every time will be, yeah, I meant what I said. Right. This is the thing is that like they're going to they're going to play around with they're, people are going to play around with all kinds of other interpretations of, what, of what's been happening here. And like and they'll land on something eventually and there will be recriminations eventually. But none of that matters. Right. None of it matters. Right. But the flood of takes is imminent. I'm sure we're going to see all sorts of uh, analyses about. What could have been done when? At what point in the campaign should he have done this? I'm sure a lot of people will, you know, say, I was always saying he should drop out and this is why he should have dropped out sooner or something. But the fact of the matter is, is that essentially, as Artie and I were talking about earlier, after South Carolina, the whole world changed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's like an alternate timeline. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of these takes are still going to exist in that timeline. It's going to be fucking uncanny. Well, it's also, it's important to see that this, that there's a institutional and structural explanation that will help us understand what happened here. And right. it's, it's important to remember, it's not just like these are people competing in like, again, this is like the problem with like the sports coverage approach to politics. Yeah, like, right. Then it really does. Even for, even for people on the left who've maybe read a little bit 
about political economy that like get you into this mindset of thinking, oh, they are like players on a relatively even playing field and that like through rational persuasion of some kind and like standard get out the vote type politics, they're going to they're going to compete with one another. But that's not at all what's happening here. This is a socialist candidate working against capital, a party that services capital and state formations at the federal and state level, which are all designed to try to prevent this from happening. Right. Right. I mean, that's funny. Of course, like people seem to think that there are rules. And I think you're already seeing like, Phil, you're right. The fact of the matter is that it's like very plain to see that this was, you know, a a coordinated effort to control the outcome of something that we pretend to be fair. Right. And I mean, like, if there was any doubt about that, let's just look through the phases of the campaign, right? So let's start before the primaries. Let's start with the Bernie's decision to even enter the race. This, the immediate sort of response of the uh, sort of professional class servants of capital was that this is this is going to be so ruptural. This will be devastating. They were foretelling the death of uh, democracy as a result of this, right. um, as mm-hmm. a result of him even entering the race, right? There was yeah. this idea. And, and that's also when you started to see that like Americans will never go for Medicare for all. This is too radical of an agenda. Um, crazy Bernie. Crazy Bernie. And, you know, what do you see um, six, seven months later? Support for Medicare for all unsurprisingly, right, increases. Support for workers' rights uh, increases. Uh, All of these key sort of agenda items for like building non-reformist reforms emerge and surge in popularity. How do you explain that other than the fact that there is a well of material uh, support uh, for somebody that endorses making people's lives demonstrably better? So, But but again, even at the beginning- there was an effort to keep him out of the race. Right. No, and and it was sort of like before anyone had actually announced their their candidacies, there was sort of like an agreement that it was possible Bernie was going to do 2016 again, right? Mm-hmm. As as if this had been um, a strategy in 2016 that was meant to disrupt the flow. I don't even know. Like, well, I mean, quite literally, quote unquote, journalists like uh, Virginia Heffernan uh, <laughs> believe that the Sanders campaign in 2016 and I think 2020 was like a Kremlin op. So, you know, yeah, uh, <laughs> I always forget about her. I don't know yeah. how I do, but I mean, I think what this shows is it takes quite a, you know, when you're, when you're not willing to accept something like, I don't know, Occam's razor that, you know, maybe people telling you that their lives are bad and that they would like some more rights, please. Um, <laughs> like are not in fact lying to you and their lives are bad and they would like some more you know, right. Please, please. Can can Um, I have a little chemo, sir? Please just a little more chemo, please. Right. But so to, you know, to, to, to ignore that sort of fundamental fact requires constructing this sort of entire worldview around it. It like requires the building of a, of a much more complicated, like Rube Goldberg esque ideological apparatus around yourself to, to support and cushion you. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I mean, exactly. that's, I, I have a very hard time seeing the, you know, the DNC or most, I mean, frankly, most political press, but like, you know, the, the operations of the mainstream democratic party and people like Neera Tandon as anything, but like, you know, constructors of that giant board game setup of mousetrap. Right. <laughs> Well, and so like, so let's move on to the, the, the next big phase, right. Of the, uh, of the process, which was 
the debates and this sort of pre-primary period, right? Where mm-hmm. the big criticism of Bernie that will come out now is that he and his surrogates were in fact, quote unquote, on the same page with everybody, but took an adversarial approach to right. politics and thus hampered themselves from building an electoral coalition, which number one, that commits two major errors. Number one, it assumes that the people he was arguing against were not the other candidates in the race, but their coalitions of electoral support, their supporters, um, which is not true. <laughs> he was arguing against them. And two, no, but it's it is, your team, Phil, you know, right. right our our team. The sweatshirt. But the second thing that it does is it assumes that the positions that the candidates ultimately came to hold as a result of Bernie putting them out on the agenda and making them popular are the candidates or the uh, positions that they started with, which is right. patently untrue. Um, mm-hmm. the, right. Even the idea that you would have like Kamala Harris coming out for whatever she came out with, that is, is impossible to imagine her doing that and to imagine Neera Tannen going on the Politico podcast with Dan Diamond and trying to explain that what they were talking about was the functional equivalent of Medicare for all. That doesn't happen unless there's something else uh, on the table and it doesn't happen unless there's adversarial politics. Um, And so like the idea that he, he hamstrung himself through adversarial politics, it presumes that he could have in fact built an electoral coalition without it. Right. I think also it's like worth noting a lot of like that sentiment from, you know, sort of like the uh, Center for American Progress types is in some ways to me like a veiled anger at basically what they see as like Bernie Sanders having done to some of their candidates. Like, like let's take Kamala Harris. Like I think in a lot of ways, her wrapping herself around the axle with just like some ridiculous sort of like half measure like Medicare for all ish policy like that that inevitably was sort of like politically like her downfall. Right. Like I think a lot of those people see like see that that kind of a thing similar to what happened to Warren. I mean, that's a little different, but we can talk about it like essentially like Bernie being in the race, like did that to them. And they see it as like Bernie, like throwing out banana peels, like left and right for people. And and they continue to, uh, you know, talk about it uh, for, for Biden, you know, when, when Biden loses, Mm -hmm. frankly, Mm -hmm. just going to say that like when Biden loses, it's going to be all Bernie's fault and all Bernie's supporters fault when, you know, meanwhile, Literally, not just Biden, but basically every other, um, you know, mainstream candidate in the Democratic uh, primary, including Elizabeth Warren, mm-hmm. um, particularly towards the end, uh, you know, spent the entire primary season basically picking between one of two things, which is uh, either, uh, as in the case of Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren, literally taking the, you know, the names of Sanders mm-hmm. uh, policy platforms and proposals like Medicare for all and, and then like spinning a word. Yeah. Some spinning some like neoliberal, um, y- you know, like policy document that had absolutely nothing to do with it um, as you know, as the, or or actively fighting against and undermining any of the like messaging that mm-hmm. they were like. And this is maybe even the more this, this is all of them again. But, you know, think of um, Joe Biden's. Joe Biden's entire uh, like litany of attacks against Medicare for all and uh, Pete Buttigieg's like Medicare for all who want it. His and this is path. just 
And this is all just like, I mean, we're only just talking about like the almost PR nonsense of the, of like what happened within the campaign when there's, there are also like discrete events (laughs) that happened that, uh, that, you know, were consolidated showings of, of power basically against this grassroots movement. So, right. And I mean, I think the other thing is, you know, if you recall those early debates and I remember the episodes we did around those, you remember what the main line that people would say in those debates? I agree with Bernie. And it was either like, I agree with Bernie, but, or I agree with Bernie yet, or I agree with Bernie period. But like already the ideological sort of like war of position was, you know, it was very clear who the candidate was setting the agenda was. Did you guys, and they're even doing it today. Did you guys read Biden's um, statement that came out from his press team? No. What was it? He's, he does it in the statement. He's got like a whole paragraph that's like, it's an 800 word statement that's mostly like urging Bernie people to support well, this, Biden. But the, it like it all hinges on the point of Biden says like Bernie and I are good friends and I know, you know, we want to get to the same place and I appreciate Bernie bringing this like into the public arena. Um, we just disagree about how to get there. Right. I mean, we want is, the same thing. This is always the line though too, right? I mean, this is the thing this is, and this is sort of like the, the, uh, the actual kernel of the vote blue, no matter who thing is that like mm-hmm. the line is always, uh, you know, com- I mean the line coming from, um, centrist and not just Joe Biden, but actually like, frankly, a bunch of your average, like man, man on the street turned pundit, uh, like listener of like pod save America or something. Right. Mm-hmm. They'll be like, Oh, well, you know, we, you and I like support the same thing. Um, like we're, we're, we're like not arguing here. You and I support the same thing. And it's like, well, no, I mean, really? I mean, I'm, I'm over here saying that we should have Medicare for all in an American NHS, like broad, I mean, broadly based, I'm saying we should like, de- like dethrone capitalism to uh, right. shout out to Southland tales. But like if you, if you ever try to actually press like, well, okay, then like, what are your actual principles? Like what mm-hmm. do you actually want? You know, um, the, when, when that's interrogated, it's not like, it's, it's just fundamentally not true. Like these are, mm-hmm. I mean, this is pro- part of the problem I think with, there is going to be a sizable chunk of people who I think say like, oh, well, you know, I guess uh, I guess I was right before like uh, like electoralism is like completely not where it's at and just like withdraw right totally right, from right, that domain. Yeah. And I think that's like kind of a shame because it's actually almost less of a problem of having electoralism be at least like, you know, one again, branch of the overall Mm -hmm. uh, activity and organizing that you're doing and almost more of an issue of like the entire fundamental structure, actually of how we do like the specific, the specificity of like elections in the United States and the fact that there is no meaningful structure to like support these things. Actually, you know, if, you know, if we lived, if we lived in a country where there were like, you know, five or six parties or something like that, I feel this like this would be a lot easier. This would be, yeah, this would be fundamentally different. Well, and that's sort of what has been one of the things that we've talked about from the start is that, you know, this is a movement that's about so much more down the line and that it would be make it so much easier to have someone in that branch of the government. But it's also a question as to whether or not the government will survive COVID. So, right. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like, I, I mean, mm. functionally, I, I, when I heard that it was the, that he was sort of suspending and not dropping out, like I kind of read that as like the situation currently like hasn't really changed because I've just sort of felt like for maybe the last like month, Bernie's just waiting for Biden to die. 
<laughs> and like, I know that's really dark and fucked up, but it was a poss- it was a definite possibility. I thought I thought about that once or twice myself. Yeah, like I kind of think he's just like winning himself like a jovial congratulatory news cycle or two, like from like mm-hmm. the center, so that like when Biden does die, he can like come back at the convention oh. and be like, you know, you guys all said I was really great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm sorry, but if you think he he's actually he's definitely he might be thinking that, but he's not going to win that from the center. He's going to win opprobrium yeah. immediately, and he already has. Like he yeah. came out like John King on CNN is already like, well, Bernie didn't say anything nice about uh, uh, Biden, right? Like that's I, I think he's he's not going to get that. Uh, uh, but yeah, I think it definitely does. I agree with you, Vince, in the sense that it's felt like there's been a suspension not only of his campaign in the last three weeks, but of yeah, already. the race itself. itself. Or yeah. the idea of the 2020 election has felt to me like in a state of suspended animation. Well, it's funny that you say that because I have some breaking news out of uh, New York State politics. <laughs> um, I highly recommend checking out our most recent Patreon episode, patreon.com slash death panel pod we covered the new york state budget extensively and it's about a lot more than the budget highly recommend however that budget that we discussed and a lot more than the state right that fucking pile of piece of shit austerity trash guess what it's possible that because of the budget new york state will cancel its primary oh my god excellent cancel cancel Great. Okay. Just so lovely. Breaking. Lovely. I'm going to read this. Primary is going to be awesome. Cool. cool. Douglas Keller, the State Board of Election Democratic co-chair, said that in light of Sanders' announcement, he and Democratic Commissioner Andrew Spano would likely remove Sanders and every other candidate that has dropped out from the ballot. Quote, that would mean... But he hasn't dropped out, though. Right. Well, I guess there is something, there is some precedent with... Uh, I guess they did this for Trump in 2016 because he was the only candidate by the time New York happened. So they didn't even print anything, basically. And they're saying that because of budget concerns, they're considering not even printing anything. So they say, um, quote, that would mean that jurisdictions where there are no contested primaries, there would be no primary elections and polls would not open, Kellner told City and State, adding that polls will still open for special elections that are scheduled on the 23rd. Kellner said that he and Spano would probably hold that meeting within the next week or two and that they would probably cancel the primary. However, well, Sanders said in a public address announcing the suspension of his campaign that he would remain on the ballot in all states where he is qualified. They asked if he had heard Sanders' announcement. He said no. And they asked if that would impact his and Spanner's decision. And Kellner said, we'll see. Yep. Then reiterated that they will probably cancel see, the see, primary. This is the thing. Though. Thank you, local newspapers. Well, yeah, but the, the, right. But this is this is the thing, though. I mean, ultimately, we have and that's that's why I think it's important to to talk through this, not as a again, not as like a postmortem of a campaign itself even, but of just a of, of the I don't know, the the uh, the extremely Kafka-esque uh, situation in this election because mm-hmm. we have I mean we'll, we'll get to like what happened in Wisconsin just this week but we had things like I mean even as you know like Illinois and, and like Florida and all these states were about to vote they just sort of like pressed on as as those states were basically effectively about to shut down uh, and go into this like coronavirus uh, like isolation quarantine and uh, and you know state like basically stay at home 
um, orders situation. Like they, they pressed ahead with those primaries. And then even right after those primaries, you know, effectively said there were calls already at that point uh, from yeah. DNC officials to say, like, we'll wrap it up. We should, like, effectively call off the primary. I mean, Not just from DNC officials, obviously from, like, idiots like James Carville who don't really have power anymore. But, I mean, Ken Klippenstein had this this um, great tweet, which I wish he hadn't, like, deleted and rephrased because I think the original um, was more... I like apt, their early work too. Actually, which is just that the original version. Which is uh it was originally phrased as like states that didn't get to vote in yes. the primary. Mm-hmm. Um New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Ohio, New Mexico, Oregon, Indiana, Connecticut, Maryland, Kansas, Kentucky, Hawaii, Georgia, Louisiana, West Virginia, Delaware, Nebraska, South Dakota, Montana, Wyoming, <laughs> Hawaii, Alaska, and Rhode Island. We're so stupid stupid in new york state we're so fucking stupid we literally have he, precedent to let them do it right it's li- but also it's literally he's rephrased he rephrased it to states that haven't even held their primaries yet but seeing especially this new york example but also seeing that you know de facto and even even and this is the, the sort of thing about this is like the comment about uh the campaign seems as though it's maybe been sort of in suspended animation already for a couple of weeks which you know they were doing a lot just virtually frankly mm-hmm. um uh, and w- which unfortunately makes it like much more difficult to to have a visual around and to and to see. But they, you know, effectively, yeah, yeah, like these these states did not get to have their say in this at this point right. already. It's like it is decided, and it's been. This doesn't yeah. seem like a very good system to me. Maybe <laughs> no. that's an obvious point, but like <laughs> this whole primary thing seems like a bit a bit of a mess. And but also, it's an optical illusion, right? Right. It's a complete optical illusion. Mm-hmm. This idea that like we're going to go throughout the country and like you'd imagine there's a metaphorical train with a whistle stop of some kind that like, <laughs> yes, we're going throughout the country and we're persuading people as if it isn't the party really in the back of all of these things. Um mm-hmm exerting significant control, not, o- not only as we've known in the past, the way that uh, candidates are presented and the way that they're endorsed and the way that the sort of public understanding of the stakes of the race is constrained, but also the literal, as we've seen this year, in a way it was so much more naked than in any other primary that I've seen in my life, um, yeah. the manipulation of the rules. In, in, in ways that would make the Republican Party in some states blush. Um, and I think the like, you know, this is there's a two two things just like the, the context of this one is the Democratic Party never, ever forget. It's never been a working class party. Never. It has been a party mm-hmm. that has tried to gain the votes and co-opt the working class, period. Yeah. Second point, we don't get to choose the political economic conditions in which elections are run. Um, and that is something that is always going to make socialist electoral strategy hard. Doesn't mean that the ballot box isn't where we should be fighting these things in part. It's just that like this, like what is happening in New York right now illustrates this so perfectly that like, remember what these events are. They are Mm -hmm. not the kind of thing that you might want to see. Mm -hmm. Right. And the democratic party is not the vehicle that is going to take us to anything approaching even social democracy, right? No, right. By no means. Yeah, clearly. I mean, they seem all all queued up to, 
you know, practically become the next GOP at this point. Um, I mean, not even the next. I mean, they are basically the GOP again. But no, the, a lot of people were were joking, bringing up old takes from when there was the initial DNC chair election that was happening, which is where the world was first introduced to Pete Buttigieg. Yeah, remember, and and there are all these things. It's like, what was the point of Tom Perez? And it's just been uh, adorable to see people be like, this, this was the point. This well, is why they hired him. I mean, yeah. and, and again, that's why I think it's important to bring up these sort of like specific instances of kneecapping. I right. mean, in a lot of ways, I, I you know, it's interesting because obviously, c- considering the coronavirus uh, crisis, we are in a you know phenomenally different and uncharted territory. Uh, you know, from when, right. where we were mere months ago, but frankly, um, the I, I think that's just all this did really was exacerbate the fact that um, there there was basically an, an attempt in the like weekend leading up to um, South Carolina and then Super Tuesday, the week those two weekends, mm-hmm. um, to rapidly consolidate power in, within the span of a week within the race, and that was accomplished by you know Buttigieg and uh, Klobuchar's you know, basically like dropping out around the same time, endorsing Biden, leading to this huge push. Right. Right. Um, And the uh, and like subsequently, you know, basically not even because that did that didn't in itself close the like electoral pathway in any way. What it did was it it engineered this like media spectacle around this like practically non-present candidate. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, right. Um, and it made it de facto like, okay, this is, this is like daddy Biden, daddy Biden's going to be the nominee, Mm -hmm. like go and go and like do like do the good work of, of voting for him. Like we'll give you a cookie afterwards or something like that. And it's, I think also it's like worth remembering that like the only way that Bernie would and will win this primary is due to like, like monumental fuck ups on the part of like the democratic establishment at their own game. Right. Like they control, as Phil was saying, like the rules, the, uh, the, like the stakes, who's in, who's out, like whatever they, it's like, it's their show. Yeah. It's paid most importantly. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And it felt like for a few weeks, you know, that like, oh my God, these guys are actual fucking morons. They like, they're letting Bernie win like (laughs) at their own rigged ass game. Like they are so stupid. And, and part of it, it felt like was like due to like the hubris of like Pete Buttigieg and, and Amy Klobuchar. And like, you know, I, I definitely for a brief period of time was like, Oh my God, like all of these like stupid competing narcissists are literally going to, to let Bernie have that. And you know, I don't know what it necessarily says about like the the efficacy of like the democratic machine still that they were able to like, well. you know, at the at the eleventh hour uh, like kneecap him. But it definitely says something that like the Sanders campaign was able to like get this close, right? That just like you know the the right. right. And I mean, if you look at like South Carolina, right, and the narrative that people want to tell about South Carolina is that two things. One is that South Carolina was truly was the beginning of the end because of the way the vote went in South Carolina, which is wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, it's, it's completely wrong. It is completely wrong. Um, what happened after South Carolina is what catalyzed some of the processes and the change uh, in the race that we saw. It was the fact that a candidate who 
you know, weeks or day, days before was basically considered to be dead um, politically. Maybe, maybe normally. Was, was resuscitated by these, this sort of consolidation around him. And uh, it had very little to do with the underlying sort of political strength. It's simply that um, the party made a decision. They said, this is worth risking everything on this candidate. And that is, you know, that is a Mm -hmm. huge piece of the story. Now, the other thing that I think is critical here is that the line that you're going to hear from, I'm guessing Vox, I'm guessing some other sort of like, you know, whiz kid political commentators is that, you know, well, Bernie just didn't work at building a big enough coalition with these. And and that like presumes that those that like a Buttigieg, a Klobuchar, a Harris, a Booker were ever going to support Bernie. Mm-hmm. That like if he right. had somehow only been nicer or moderated in some way that they would have <laughs> supported him rather than the former vice president uh, who would would have been in any set of conditions the favorite of the party, right? I mean, Bernie would have mm-hmm. had to moderate so hard that he would have no longer been the alternative candidate that created political energy right. around himself, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. But that's what they that's what they would prefer anyways, oh, right? If only he if only he didn't have these things that are the very reason that their their absence is the very reason that uh, the Democratic Party has been tanking. Um, In recent years, if only. It's kind of worth saying also that they had to go to extraordinary measures in order to upset this. And they had to get very, very publicly involved down to like, I'm just thinking of like Iowa now to zoom forward a little bit, like with the Iowa app and all of the sort of controversy and clear evidence of nepotistic hiring and a revolving door with the Obama administration and the sort of like network of consultants on consultants. Like, I feel like the one thing that that's really obvious is that they have used and burned through so much talent and money to try and stop someone who's being funded by donations that averaged at like under $20. Talent Mm -hmm. is generous. I'd say talent. But. I mean, talent in like a pure human meat bag that can tweet. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Like spoke like of, a true capitalist. <laughs> yeah, exactly. A, a pair of thumbs attached to uh, an energy right. source. Like think about how much, like Mike Bloomberg spent a ton of money, but he also had to like emergency inject money into the DNC in order for them to like keep spending money because they can spend all the money that they want, but ultimately the things that they're trying to convince people that they need are unconscionable, right? Like, and it's very hard to try and rebrand um, cruelty and austerity and neoliberal capitalism after it's uh, demonstrated how broken it is, right? And it just keeps getting worse. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's why Iowa was in part so surprising, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, is that we got to see this for the first time really up close and personal, what will happen or what is what people are willing to resort to or de- default to when they can't engage their sort of persuasive or um, hegemonic capacities that they have to result resort right. to manipulations of rules, technical procedures and mm-hmm. make it look like a big boo boo. Or they use COVID in order to control the turnout because that's all they have left. Right. 
is um, i mean actually maybe do we want to take a take a moment to talk about what happened in wisconsin because i feel like um what we saw just this week is a kind of picture perfect view of how the democratic party has approached the sort of continuation of of the election i mean that's a good point and uh actually yesterday was the wisconsin primary and phil so you were actually supposed to be working the polls yesterday. I was, yeah. And we had a lot of long talks about it internally, but maybe we could sort of like, if you don't totally understand the Wisconsin situation, read uh, Phil's piece for Jacobin. But maybe you could give people like a little quick rundown of what the deal is. Yeah. So I think it's helpful to, the story is also going to get messed up here. Um, and so I want to put Wisconsin in context here. A few weeks ago, Illinois held its primary, and uh, the results of that primary were disastrous. Probably it's going to come out that they were disastrous for public health, um, and they certainly were disastrous for people's ability to access the ballot box. That's why turnout was so monumentally down um, from the last election. And that's a story about a Democratic governor, Pritzker who supported Biden, I think came out for him the night before the election and let it happen. <laughs> yeah. And he didn't have a Republican um, uh, legislature uh, screwing around with him. Uh, there weren't, it wasn't like sort of an oppositional uh, sort of politics. He just let it happen. Right. In Wisconsin, it's different in the sense that you have Republicans who, you know, the nature of the ballot was different. You had a state Supreme Court seat at the top of the ballot on, in the state that where there was a Republican incumbent named Dan Kelly who, you know, was running for office. And so in addition to Democrats, you know, the state party probably wanting to be, you know, not at least so forward thinking about like delaying the primary, you also had this basically murderous death cult party um, <laughs> that has been trying to dismantle democracy in Wisconsin for years. Um you know, actively gunning against any kind of um, change in the election. But the important thing that that uh, the two elections have in common is that for a very long time, Governor Tony Evers and Wisconsin Republicans held the same position on whether or not the uh, election should go on as uh, planned, right? Right. Evers and Republicans two weeks ago held the same position. And what's more, and I think this is really, really important is that rather than take proactive steps to delay the election and say, I, the governor, have the authority to do this, Evers said repeatedly that he didn't have the authority to do this and only the legislature could delay the election. And when you were looking down the stream at a Supreme Court that is looking for any opportunity to cabin your power and you're a Democrat and they're controlled by Republicans... Saying that you don't have the authority to do something is far more than they need to tell you that you don't have the authority to do it. (laughs) Right. So Evers, absolutely, there's going to be a lot of takes that come out and say like, well, he eventually did the right thing. And like, yes, he eventually did the right thing, but he absolutely hamstrung himself. And it wasn't just like a miscalculation. I think it was utter mismanagement and demonstrates that absolute failure of his leadership and the the consequence of this sort of indemnification politics as we talked about on the show before is that you had five of 180 polling places 
open in Milwaukee and you had overwhelmingly black and brown working class voters putting themselves at risk and being forced to choose between their life or their civil rights. And it's absolutely unconscionable and demonstrates not merely the callousness of the Republican Party and their utter disregard for human life, but Democrats' complete failure, complete lack of political leadership when the chips are down and when the lives of working class voters are at stake. And not just voters, but poll workers. So I was signed up to work the polls. And, uh, you know, until the day before I was going to work, um, because that's Mm -hmm. the, my sort of like built in sense of, uh, you know, ethics, I guess it's just like, well, we have to soldier on. And indeed, like that's a lot of the, the rhetoric that's coming out, um, afterwards. But when there's something that's so absolutely obnoxious to the idea of public health or democracy or both participating in it makes you, I think, morally culpable. And uh, yeah. I think that that's where where we need to like, that's what we need to be thinking. That's the kind of way that we need to be thinking, um, not only about this election, but about the the institutions that drive our politics. Right. right. I mean, you mentioned uh, you mentioned to us that basically like the state Democratic Party was still doing totally regular, like get out the vote stuff. Right. Yeah. Um, on, on Tuesday as though, you know, it isn't, it isn't basically, you know, them, them effectively like daring a bunch of people to go like, again, funnel into like five, only like five or so open mm-hmm. polling places. Um, you know, like re- really like concentrating everything. And if you look at like, you know, people were posting actually, I think Phil, you, you reposted to, um, that, that like image that was going around of the location of the sort of coronavirus the known coronavirus hotspots in milwaukee and then like literally all of the uh polling sites that were open are like smack dab in the middle of it Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. when you have a situation where they're literally i mean it's almost like they're just trying to you know they're just rushing forward like let's okay it it doesn't really matter disregard for human life let's get the result that we want to right and in a way actually i can i can imagine that um seeing almost the the sort of like callousness with which uh in everyone including the state democratic party was like treating this uh situation um on tuesday i can't imagine that that didn't affect some of the decision today actually. well in 1918 they made the same mistake in new york city remember the mayor didn't right. delay the election because it was a very politically important election it single-handedly probably killed half of the residents of the of, of like lower Manhattan, which at the mm-hmm. time was where workers lived. This was like tenement buildings. And they basically sent everyone to the polls and everyone brought it back to the tenement buildings. And then everybody got sick. And, right. you know, we're like, I, I was very nervous about Phil going because, you know, we, we know like it's, it's very contagious or whatever. But, and when I called and I was like, you know, you got to think about this in terms of like, you can actually do some good and not infect people by not going. And, and obviously that's very small thinking, but I think Phil, your point kind of extends that you got out of that, which is like, it's actually more importantly, a moral issue that kind of extends to the general in this situation. Also, I think. I also want to say, I don't, I'm not saying that people who went and voted yesterday or people who went and worked the polls are immoral. That is not what I'm saying. No, no, no. Exactly. I'm saying that the immorality flows from the top down. The fact that the Democratic Party didn't say, 
at this point. This is this is an illegitimate election. This is a spoiled election. And we are going right. to encourage voters to sue to annul the election, which they can do. Mm-hmm. Right. There are plenty of people right now, thousands of people who have standing to sue because this is a spoiled election. It's an illegitimate election. And there's no reason we should have to abide by its results. But the fact the party didn't come out immediately and say that meant that by the time the nightly news happened, the national news, NPR, they were like, well, you know, it's just an election. And, you know, like a lot of American elect- this is not what they were saying, but like paraphrasing, like, oh, a lot of American elections are shitty. And this one was right. a little bit <laughs> shittier. And, um, yeah. you know, so I guess we're going to, you know, uh, unfortunately, states deal with this in, in different ways. And like, of uh. course, the baseline is already bad. We've already seen <laughs> huge lines in so many other places. We've already seen botched elections in Illinois. But, yeah. you know, this is just just admitting that. Or, or failing to admit that we live in a system where democracy is failing over and over and over again only leaves it open to just its complete decimation. Right. Yeah. I mean, and that's what I think that's one of the reasons why I say that the, the whole election feels so um, surreal at this point, because clearly, we, like, you're, you're right. They have standing to have done a, to have taken very different actions. But I don't think that they really like the state party doesn't doesn't really appear to care about anything but like sort of securing its result essentially right. or just kind of stamping like okay this happened move on like don't, nothing to see here don't worry about us don't worry about wisconsin um and the and you know meanwhile again this is all like hap- happening in this weird vacuum where it's fi- i know i know that it's sort of that um you know bernie has suspended his campaign today and we were all sort of uh reeling from that in our own uh, separate ways and that, and what that, what that means, whether again, whether, whether, whether your whether electoralism and electoral politics are your main thing or not, we're reeling from that. And I think, I think the fundamental fact is it almost due to some of the circumstances that have happened, um, over the course of, again, since super Tuesday, but especially since the coronavirus hit, it almost feels like it's not that the 2020 election or the primary especially was just sort of decided or sort of stopped by this it's almost as though like oh well actually like let's just not do the let's just not do the election right you know what i mean it almost feels like oh there just wasn't an election at all yeah so i mean you know what we're seeing i think it's actually helpful i think what is happening now is it is helpful that it is so explicitly ugly because it illustrates that we have to snap out of the idea that we are working uh, or mobilizing in a, in a fair system where like normal electoral politics alone, I want to emphasize that alone can do the work because <laughs> the the ballot box is a powerful tool for for the working class, but it only gains its power because of threats that exist or capacity that exists outside of it. That's what gives it its power, I think. And yeah, I think that one thing that's helpful is like circulating this grammar of action that's necessary now. Sometimes elections are illegitimate and when they happen and they are illegitimate, it is 100% okay to call them illegitimate and demand okay, yeah. that they be retaken. That is just something that mm-hmm. I think very few people in like this political milieu um, do or are prepared to do. But I think that we need to be thinking about, and now we have the opportunity because this has been so grotesque that like, you have to imagine um, a different way of contesting these things. You have to imagine um, different strategies for, for gaining power. And right. the, the other thing I think is that 
this illustrates so much more why the real capacity that the working class has now is not only to do class struggle elections, right, as we saw with Bernie, because again, remember that he's already had an effect. Um, There's already been a political delta from this entire campaign. But it illustrates that like so much of what is important right now is happening in the streets, um, outside of Amazon warehouses, outside of Trader Joe's, um, whole worker. That's, I think, where like we are built, where this energy is going to um, to build. And I think it's actually that in addition to class, you can't have one without the other in a way. You right. can't have movements right. without yeah. class struggle elections. You can't have class real class struggle elections without movements. Um, mm-hmm. And so right. I think it's, you know, I can already see the wheels turning, not just in Wisconsin, but elsewhere um, to force uh, these issues in uh, arenas where there actually is power. Again, we're all right. So much of the economy is right now effectively looking like it is on a general strike. Um, and the question now in the next couple of weeks is how do we harness that? Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, I think, too, I mean, we're seeing it all over the place. Um, just a couple months ago, you had like the Moms for Housing. I think they're called. They were seizing like vacant properties in Oakland. Mm-hmm. And now um, and that's like a little bit of pressure involved. Um, but now you have such a massive movement of people talking about, you know, a rent strike or just organizing tenants unions and like we're in a position to actually possibly force New York City to ha- like house homeless people in empty hotels and condos. You know, that like that is uh, attainable now. They have all these exceptions, but we also like have leverage, I think. And and I think a lot of people are like struggling with how to use that right now, obviously, because sort of the traditional ways of like. Uh, of like requesting or applying the leverage are just like not available, like either protest or more like technocratic, like, you know, petitioning and whatever, like ballot initiatives. So a couple things to note, right? This, this is not just about the election in Wisconsin. This is about a decades long struggle to undermine working class power. And where does it start? It starts in in the economy. It starts with undermining workers' rights and uh, the um, right to work legislation, and just killing public sector employees' collective bargaining capacity. It continues to gerrymandering. It continues to a power grab against um, uh, you know a newly incoming governor, and it lands here. Why? Because the elect the ballot box is the last site where. They know that there's some vestige of working class power. They wouldn't try to undermine it um, otherwise, right? Mm-hmm. But the what do you do when you have an illegitimate contest? Well, there is, you know, international election observers um, have a sort of body of principles um, that guide basically how they deem elections illegitimate. And also there's right. a body of case law in the United States that gives voters the power to sue to what's called a null an election and to uh, have a court mandate that there be um, a new one. Um, so the there are a few conditions, right? If you can't ascertain who the true winner of an election was, if there are irregularities uh, that fundamentally undermine the fairness of the election, um, when the original election fails to comply with essential voter protections, right. um, all mm-hmm. of those things have a referent in law. So, for example, there's a case from the early 20th century, Hamer versus Campbell. Election officials failed to properly register voters. 
grounds for an annulment of the election. Extensive voter disenfranchisement occurs. McNally versus Tollander, uh, Urey versus Santee. The election failed to provide substantially equal voting facilities. And actually, there's I think that it's either that case or another case where the election was annulled because at various polling sites in places where you would imagine that they would be, the election was um, administered by police officers and um, uh, <laughs> members of the armed forces. And this was intimidating to voters. Uh, yeah. And so the, this is also the grounds for annulling um, an election. Now, the skeptic is going to say, perhaps rightly, that the courts aren't going to help you here. We've already seen what the courts do. We know what the courts are. And in one sense, they're right about that. But the such an important thing right now is marking out what doesn't count as a, as a legitimate election and actually hmm. getting that clear in the minds of masses of people. And this is something that we're not commonly familiar with doing. When an illegitimate election happens, like if you think about Brian Kemp's election in Florida, the way that it gets mm-hmm. covered is like, right. oh, there were some irregularities and oh, it kind of it kind of was crappy. But, well, you know, guess what happens in a democracy is you sort of move on. Um, Anyone that spent time in a DMV will know that the government can't do anything right. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> and the other, the other critique that I'm sure that I'm going to hear as soon as I put this piece out is that, uh, well, all you're doing is you're just opening up the opportunity for Trump to um, contest the validity of his own election. And right. to that, I would say he's already going to do that. Don't you see yeah, it? Anyway. You idiot. <laughs> no um, shit. Exactly. Like this idea that you're somehow by by exercising forbearance that you are causing Trump to exercise forbearance is the equivalent in politics of playing the Ouija, playing with a Ouija board. Um, sorry right. for anybody who believes in the Ouija board, but, um, you know, <laughs> it's, uh, it is not, you're, you're, you know, hey, you're hey, moving Ma- it. Ma- Someone's don't, moving don't it. Don't speak ill of Mattel here. Listen, if the, whoever if the makes we- it, Mattel, Hasbro, I don't know. If know. the Ouija board <laughs> says that the election is illegitimate, then it can stay. But otherwise yeah. we don't need it. <laughs> right. Yeah. We're, we're good with the magic eight ball over here. I love the magic eight ball. Yeah. It is decidedly so. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah. no, I mean, thank you. Sorry to force you into professor mode for a second, but it's like, there's a reason why, like, I have no idea what the parameters would be, I think, because, you mm-hmm. know, um, unfortunately they're not tested very often. Right. And there's also like a in vested interest in people like me, not understanding what that would well, even entail or how possible it would be. Yeah, so right. I mean, I think there's this big problem, I think at the level of like public ideas about democracy like after Trump was elected, you had all of these people publishing books about like, oh, how democracies fall apart and, you know, uh, coming authoritarianism and so on. And they talk about democratic collapse as if you're either you are either a democracy or you are not. And <laughs> it's sort of like a binary thing. And that like when, you know, basically it's like what what we're trying to predict is like when democracy completely falls apart, Mm -hmm. it just presumes Mm -hmm. that the United States is a democracy and that there aren't like discrete events that we can point to and say, okay, what do you do when that happens? What do you do when you have a Republican legislature that just says, yeah, you know what? Fucking election. Right. Or the very, or the very, or when the very people who are, you know, running, uh, running around yelling fire saying that, you know, democracy will fall apart unless we, 
you know, unilaterally pick Joe Biden um, are, uh, you, you know, are, are like actively undermining democracy in the like it in itself mm-hmm. yeah, but democracy is like a makeover it's like before you weren't democracy and now your life is better it's like um what's that show um queer eye for the straight guy but like for democracy <laughs> you know they just do it's just like they do a makeover and you're good to operation go. iraqi freedom but they've, for here they've installed <laughs> new voting booths. Exactly. look how great these are there's a new way you have to sign your name to vote um, welcome, you know, to your improved voting experience, like goodbye, yeah. you're fine. But this is the thing, right? Is that like the way that we develop as a strategy for actually building power in moments like this is by dealing not in the area of ideas and not in this sort of like fictional world that the liberal imagination resides in, but through actually considering the material realities of what a botched election or an illegitimate election looks like and then responding in kind. And, you know, you know, in addition to that, like thinking about what the material realities of the coronavirus are and where areas of potential uh, power and resistance for um, the working class uh, reside. And like only by looking at these things in the face, which is very, very easy to get blackpilled quite quickly. Um, can we begin to think about how we like the worst thing that we can do right now is insulate retreat to ideas only and right. pretend as if the ugly, unbelievable ugliness isn't here. It's here, but it also contains lessons and the seeds of what we have to do. Right. I mean, maybe, maybe to sort of bring this uh, full, full circle about the campaign suspension thing. Um, yeah. I just want to, I do want to point out that I, f- I feel like this is the point of, Okay, let's be real. This was always the point of not me, us, right? Right. Mm -hmm. The whole point of like so much of the messaging around the campaign being, you know, this is not this is not some, you know, even even if you look at fucking mainstream uh, press writing today about like Eugene Debs, right? They talk about Eugene Debs like he was a fucking cult leader sometimes, (laughs) you know, this is the playbook, right? For when capital is threatened. You know, right. This is the playbook. It's it's happened before. It's, you know, to it is we're in the process of it basically happening again. Right. And but that doesn't mean that, like, the cycle isn't capable of being broken. And I think that to a great extent in the it, it seems clear that like within the early days of the campaign, even that like it it was understood that, uh, you know, the, that not me us resonated not only for politically for uh, Bernie Sanders message, but also in terms of what they were actively trying to do uh, with the campaign, which, as we discussed for a very long time, um, was about, you know, uh, bringing in building up and like fostering these other figures, right, creating national figures out of some of their uh, surrogates who were not otherwise um, them creating um, leadership opportunities for a lot of people and frankly, like putting uh, making it so that, I mean, I'm so, I'm extremely excited to see what, like there, there will be, there will be knock on effects of this campaign for a very long time in a way that there will not be knock on effects for like Klobuchar staffers or whatever. Oh yeah. You know what I mean? Before, before COVID happened, a white lady did a Nina Turner, hello somebody at me very earnestly because she saw me walking in a Bernie sweater around our neighborhood frankly in like you know in in my lifetime as far as i can recall 
um, these the the type of movement that we uh, saw and the type of organizing um, that we saw from the Sanders campaign, like I, I, I've never seen anything like that on a national scale. You know what I mean? That was not a small single issue specific thing. <laughs> yeah. For example, this was, you know, I, th- I think that they did a phenomenal job in creating a big tent, not just for, and you know, I'm using that word a little bit ironically, obviously, but a big tent, not just for sort of, um, you know, a, a bunch of, uh, progressively minded people who could become part of the sort of like overall, you know, Bernie, Bernie Sanders, like extended universe or whatever, but also for, uh, you know, bringing like bringing in smaller organizations, giving uh, give, like making sure that, um, you know, climate activists and disability rights activists and other people were were there and uh, housing activists were there being the people who were either like at the quote unquote table with them drafting legislation, drafting uh, policy or were you know, proposing it themselves as in the, the, as in the homes guarantee and then having it basically like, uh, you know, signal boosted immediately by this national campaign and all the people who, you know, I don't know, I guess basically like I'm, I, I don't know. I have a, I have a profound amount of, um, respect and admiration for everyone who like worked as a part of that. And I think that I'm like excited and interested to see like what will become of them. Right. You know, yeah, because they're like this is this is um, regardless because I think and this is this is what I mean by I think that they knew this from the from the start to some extent because like regardless of whether they won or lost not the not me us thing and the sort of like general message of like like or organizing solidarity and like building coalitions between um, groups of people who capital likes to separate because right. it is right. convenient <laughs> for capital to separate them right yes. Um, you know, the, they, 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 whether they won or lost the, the nomination almost doesn't matter because they did it. Right. Right. No, it's like the, it's like what our, the thing that, um, I scream at Artie about all the time, not scream at him, but like yell and he's like, it's okay, get it out. Um, of like what the fuck with all these disease based advocacy groups, which are so separate and have similar agendas and could very easily be one large advocacy body, but instead they're just like paltry fun runs as a result of the fact that like we incentivize those things being separate, you know, even down to the way that the like 501c3 status um, works. You know what I mean? Like they don't... (laughs) They don't want you to do this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. And they, and the thing is at the end of the day, they don't want us to have a decent life. They want us to be precarious. They want us to depend on them. The disease advocacy groups want you to depend on them for right. the conditions of your life. But we don't have to be on the fixed trajectory that capital has envisioned for us or that any of these people have envisioned for us, we have the ability to like happily be in a struggle um, and contribute to it. Even if we don't see the, the brighter side, even if we don't live to see the fruits of our labor, we have like an ability to be caught in that. And Mm -hmm. it does feel futile. And like the last two days, especially seeing what 
the system is capable of and who it's willing to throw into the maw is absolutely the kind of thing that, um, you know, in the absence of solidarity, it would be very easy to look at that and to recoil or to watch movies and comment on them or whatever. <laughs> but, um, nice. But that is absolutely not what we are obligated to do now morally. Right. The, the, we have like the absolute honor of carrying on um, because things have in a way never been so possible um, as gloomy as they seem. It's really because the seams are coming off. Yeah. Welcome to the long March Mm. people. Maybe this is why Rahm Emanuel is just so inspiring, you know, with his, his whole never waste a good crisis theory. Maybe that's why they love him in the establishment. Who knows? Maybe that is the right <laughs> magical thinking that we've landed on that we, you know, we need or whatever. But it's true. We have, um, we also have, I think, a task at hand, which is to, we know, like, we know that the media narrative of why Bernie's dropping out is going to seek to minimize the influence and scope of the base, Right. And it'll be an attempt to tie the organizing to the campaign specifically and the person and therefore the moment in time, right? They, they want us to sort of go away and to control the Which media Which is why narrative. it's maybe useful to have ideology <laughs> that <laughs> binds you to your politics as opposed to personality that binds you to your politics. Hey. But one is so much easier than the other, Artie. I know. It's like... In Joe Biden's case, so he has smart. neither. no but he's got a great great um series of commentary comparing fig newtons to peanut butter and jelly sandwiches oh my god i know um that was because those were the two things that his like nurse brought him this afternoon for his those those were the two things that the the biden campaign thought appropriate to release uh a yesterday to, to, to like promo for their podcast uh like during on the day of the wisconsin primary so folks um, here's the deal you remember those little gummy uh, bottles that look like they were full of root beer (laughs) (laughs) you bite them off they taste different depending on what part you bite into (laughs) if if by some strange coincidence he he does end up getting elected it will be wild to have the first president who like goes into office just uh, yeah, usually they lose it after they get into yeah, office. Yeah, like right? second term. <laughs> yeah, like Bush two definitely was like a little mm, and like you know Reagan. No, we're and we're shit. gonna be bath. We're gonna get bathtub painting George Bush out of Biden from day one. Yeah, he'll he'll do bathtub paintings in the White House from from the White House bathroom. <laughs> he'll probably sexually assault someone while doing it somehow. Uh, he'll manage oh, to. Sad. I mean, we haven't even. <laughs> Barely Even if it's the assault the painting on the podcast, but it is really. I mean the the fact that the fact that you know there was an incredibly credible uh, you know li- literal rape allegation um, against Biden that has made what debased, impact really awful one too, which is um, terrible. Well, that his actions were debased, yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, the, I, I mean, think the we're fact gonna have to that save has, that for a, another day. <laughs> 
Yeah, we can talk about, you know, the which rapist would you like to vote for argument at, an, at a later date. Maybe we could do a whole um, teardown of yeah. or, you Pope know Blue, what? no matter who. Yeah, or you know what, let's just not, I mean, you know, we can, you know, when we did the, uh, what what is what is the episode, the, the biopolitics election, we talked at length about, mm-hmm. you know, what it would really mean um, for for Biden to be the nominee, and that was before the the again very credible rape allegation um, was public, and you know all those things hold. And I think uh, you know recent events coming to light, and the fact that he's been completely absent from you know the the media. He doesn't even want to be president. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't even know what. Yeah, I don't even know if he knows what he wants. What, what does want mean in yeah. this sense? Who wants? Is it is it Biden that wants? Is it uh, you know a, like a massive gelatinous blob of uh, you know corporate consultants and uh, it's, and it's, Wall Street uh, yeah. people that just like wants? don't forget all of the uh, Who, don't forget whom, all of the whomst want Vince don't well, forget I mean, all of yeah. the DNC I mean, goons know. who uh, who produce like junk mail mailers they're all uh, they're all super down to right. <laughs> the other thing that people are gonna say is. There's going to be an attempt to manipulate what voters desired in this election or the mm-hmm. image of that. Never forget what most voters want is, in fact, even the people who voted for Biden in the primaries. Mm-hmm. They thought that Biden supported many of the things that Bernie supports. Um, and we saw that, like even coming out of South Carolina, right? You know, free college, mm-hmm. elimination of all college debt, Medicare for all. These are the things that are the demands that have to form the ground of politics now. Yeah. And uh, thank you, Bernie. Well, for yeah. That. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I mean, I guess uh, before we wrap, I would just say again, thank you to everyone who organized with this. And obviously it's not totally over yet. It's still the amount of delegates does uh, like ultimately matter when you get to the convention such as it, such as the convention is whatever the fuck dystopian scenario uh, right. the dnc tries to construct for that so they're doing you know, they're definitely doing the empty convention hall now i'm yeah i'm putting oh my, my money on it i mean but vote by mail um force your for if you live in new york or another state that's going to do uh the supremely undemocratic anti-democratic uh measure that be uh, mentioned before call your electeds and make sure that doesn't happen um do yeah. everything that you can um organize yeah i'd say follow protect um, each other follow your local reps and, try and get to know them because their work is like important now and, yeah. and they're someone you can apply leverage over and this is you know obviously this is disheartening and this is you know again welcome to a very different scenario i mentioned it as like the long march before but we're you know we're not going anywhere so no one is exempt. We'll be here. No one is exempt yeah. from their part in this. No one gets a pass. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. No one if gets you, the pass. Well, maybe Jennifer either. Rubin blogger. We don't need her. <laughs> Jay Rubin blog. Yes. <laughs> she can sit down. We're good. Jen, we got, we got it. You're good. Thanks. Yeah. And if someone, yeah. Just, yeah. Hand her a phone. It's just like handing it to a child. It's like not connected to the internet. <laughs> Resist. <laughs> But Good job, re- Jen. You got a lot of likes. Resist the urge to, you know, pick up just the like theory book off the shelf and 
sit alone, even though you're all in isolation, probably. But um, wash your hands. Don't touch your face. Don't stop making demands. This was never going to be easy. So join us Passover, anyway. y'all. Um, yeah. I happy think that's Passover. Yeah. Do you say happy? You can say happy Passover. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, and sure, uh, I am, but <laughs> yeah. So I think that about does it for this episode. If you'd like to support the show. Um, find us on Patreon. You'll get a second episode every week. That's patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. Leave us a rating and review. All that jazz. Follow us. Tell your friends. Stay inside. Stay alive another week. Solidarity forever. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Bye.